Welcome to Bottled Up. It's a podcast with a simple vision to destigmatize men's mental health through the power of storytelling, one conversation at a time. My name is Sunny, and on this episode, I'm joined by my co-host, Mayank, with our very special guest, Ashley Judd. For Mayank and I, this was quite an eye-opening conversation. This was one of the first times that we had ever spoken to anyone that has served on the front line in the Australian Army. Uh, Ash himself uh, has spent, you know, nine years in the Australian Army and is a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. Um, due to his experiences of that war um, and because of the actions and responsibilities in his line of duty as an infantry officer, Ash has faced significant challenges and was ultimately diagnosed with PTSD. In the following years, he has become somewhat of a spokesperson for lifting the veil of shame associated with PTSD and describing some of the difficulty he has endured adjusting to a normal civilian life. It's an incredible conversation, I think, um, you know, I can speak on behalf of Mank. Both of us really enjoyed being part of this conversation. So give it a listen. Uh, we would be very keen to hear what you guys take away from the conversation. And without further ado, I'll bring on Ash. Awesome. And I think one thing for our listeners, just to clear up quite early on in the discussion, is if you've got any blood relation to Chris Judd at all. <laughs> yeah, sadly, not Chris Judd, not Ashley Judd of late 90s, early aughts, action movie fame. Um, in, in fact, you may have endeavoured to get the least interesting Judd on your program, no, but I'll try to make up for it as we go through. Oh, uh, no. A Judd is a Judd, I think, at the end of the day. <laughs> Judd is a Judd. Yeah, yeah, no, I'll pull um, that out at Christmas lunch. Love it. Uh, no, it's, a, it's awesome to have you on here. Um, what started off as what was a you know, random reach out um, has turned into this. So um, I honestly, for me, and maybe I'm speaking for you, Meg, mm. it's the first time we've you know, spoken to someone who has served in the war and, and served in the Australian Army. And I think that brings a very... Um, unique perspective to what we're doing yeah. uh, on the podcast, mm. but for those for those that are listening, you know you've got a really um, distinguished career. You've you know hopped in many different positions and you know many different countries. Mm. Um, but I think you know like you know we've done our prep before starting this, and something that I, I just you know couldn't shrug is you know you you know you've done your UCID degree in, in economics and then you've gone and served in the army. And what what really started off for you? Um, you know, if you go back to you know your motivations and, and why you've chosen to serve in the army, um, yeah, what, really, for sure. what really got it started? So I was always going to be um, when I was at Sydney, when I left high school and went to the University of Sydney to study economics. I thought I would end up being a banker, no. um, and more than I thought, that was like actively the plan. Mm. Um, and what happened was is is I was a bit sort of not misdirected, but like over time um, that became sort of less of a passion thing. Mm. And I was a bit wondering, well, you know, is that what I want to do? And is that if I start that, will that be something I do forever? Um, and then what I in at university, I went on undergraduate exchange to the University of Texas at Austin. And so I was living in the US in 2004 um, and, you know, visited New York and was down at Battery Park at the Twin Towers when it was still, like, you know, a living open memorial, mm -hmm. like an, an empty, long before they started rebuilding, um, at a time where they still had sort of National Guard soldiers um, on the street. And so I was very affected by the impact um, of the, that event of September 11 on the people of America mm -hmm. who at that time, and so we can spend... A lot of time talking and probably will about the rights and wrongs of interventions about that. Yeah. But at the time, um, you know, it was uh, clearly, and I still think, a crime to kill any people, let alone thousands of people, um, to advance a political perspective. Mm. And so that started in me sort of like an internal monologue, a very undergraduate internal monologue <laughs> of like, well... I think this is profoundly wrong, therefore we should do something about mm. it and we can talk about, you know, what the thing should be. Um, but then if I think that other people should go and fight in these cause, then I, as someone who's in a relatively privileged position, shouldn't, you know, it, I felt it was profoundly unfair to have that perspective that people should go and fight in this cause, um, but that I shouldn't be willing to do it. 
And so this didn't happen in my mind over the course of sort of like a couple of days. It's probably a year of thinking. And then shortly after I returned um, to start my third year at uni, um, I joined the army um, and then went to Duntroon mm. as soon as I graduated in, um, in 2006. Mm. Now, it seems to me, and, and Sonny as well, I'm assuming that, you know, there was a there was sort of a self-responsibility or, or a self-onus to go and perform your duty to serve the country. And, um, you know, for me and Sonny, and, yep. uh, we were very young when, when, 9/11, when 9-11 happened. And, and for us, it was, it was very sort of hard to process because we didn't know exactly what we were witnessing. And, and I think the idea of sort of terrorism, um, it just wasn't in our vocabulary at the time. Um, I think I was around four or five when, when 9-11 did happen. So, um, and, but it was obviously different for you as well because you were in a very critical juncture in your life where you could make a decision whether to do something or, or sort of stay silent. And, and you certainly alluded to that whole morality question beforehand. And I think this is probably a good time to sort of talk about that because um, war is obviously seen as a, as a very sort of violent yep. uh, affair um, where sort of morals are, do come into question. Was that something that sort of entered your thought process at the time? Yeah, I think there's three things in that and, and different perspectives I took on it over different periods of time. Mm. So my first was that the first like, moral perspective I had was that political violence is profoundly wrong um, and shouldn't be willed away. And so I think um, on that, September 11 has become a bit of history now, but if you are older, um, you know, this is a profound thing. This is 3,000 people being murdered. Um, so that was the first one. The second one is a bit of like response. I, I think you put it well, my aunt, like responsibility. And, you know, if you will things to happen in the world, what accountability do you take yourself? What are you willing to do? Um, what load are you willing to let others bear on your behalf? And what does that make you feel as a person? Um, and then I think there's an important point, which is that in a representative democracy, which we are, the foreign policy of the nation is directed by like, the politicians of the nation. Um, and so I have, like, I, you know, I don't mind saying, I think the Iraq war, for example, was like a profoundly poor idea. I think there's virtually no one who doesn't think that now. Mm. Um, <laughs> but at the, same, at the same time, I didn't go to Iraq, but I was prepared to. Um, because I, we don't make those decisions. The Australian public make those decisions through the election of their representatives, and they can like or not like those decisions post hoc, but we have a, re- a democratic process for deciding that. I think that's really, that's really important. So then within that archetype, if you're willing to serve in the army, you, you're sort of like you don't have... Once you've decided to join, you don't really have the decision on... You can think about it, you have your own personal views. It's just about then um, being a values-driven leader and mm. prosecuting your mission ethically um, within that framework. Um, but there's no point getting super wrapped up in the big strategic questions other than sort of like over coffee because it's not mm. it's not in your control. So, so how did you get through that in terms of, you know, not letting the views of the overall sort of strategy of the war getting in the way of your own sort of responsibility towards your to your team and, and your I guess your granular sort of mission? I think I think you have to bifurcate your mind a bit. And so it's like you can hold really strong views on something that don't particularly change the day to day of how you do your job. And so like I think we're all who are over there, not all of us, but like lots of us had like profound thoughts about like how we were prosecuting the war in Afghanistan, particularly strategically, especially when Iraq was concurrent with Afghanistan and competed for resources with it. Now, the, but the question is, you can have your own thoughts and discussions and think about that, talk about those through with friends and loved ones, but what changes how you do your job day to day? And so... As at the sort of tactical level of combat, where I was a platoon, an infantry platoon commander, you can make negative strategic ramifications relatively easily. Like you can make mistakes, um, typically by hurting civilians, that are both morally wrong and can have strategic actions. Sadly, it's not easy the other way. It's very unlikely that anything you do tactically 
will contribute to some, you know, the the broader strategic narrative. So, like, you've just got to be... You can have thoughts about things that are in other people's lane. Everyone does. Um, But ultimately, when you've got a job to do, you've got to, like, put your head down and focus on that and try to minimise distraction. And focus on things that are, like, in your control. Um, And levers you can actually pull on. Mm. Yeah, 100%. And learning those skills is something that would have taken years of training. And what I'm sort of alluding to here is your time uh, at the Army training camp in Duntroon uh, up in New South Wales. Uh, yep. And the perception that we often have of Army training is being this gruelling and unforgiving program um, in the sense that they're trying to push you beyond your comfort zone. And I was sort of interested to know like, what was life like as a... Um, of, of a, a Duntroon cadet? Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> I, I, look back, I, start, start, I look back very fondly on Duntroon, which is... I don't remember thinking that at the time at mm. all. Yeah, okay. Um, but so I, I think you chose two really good words that I could take you th- through just just then. It's like grueling, yes, unforgiving, no. Um, I think actually it was like profoundly forgiving. And what I mean by that is like it's essentially like a, it's a coaching like they didn't use the ADF doesn't really use the word coaching, but you are being coached to over time um, have the skills and values necessary to do a pretty challenging job. And so, why I mean unforgiving is it's scaled over time. Um, so it's an eighteen or twelve month course, and you can do much more at the end than you could do it at the start. And I think it's quite well calibrated, um, both to increase your physical capacity, which by the way is like is like pretty straightforward honestly like um but your mental capacity to learn the skills needed is important but i think also almost more important at duntroon is like it's incredibly values-based organization reflecting the army's values as you say and so you really do get inculcated into i would think especially a concept of like that service comes before yourself um that you have responsibilities um, to the mission and to the army and particularly as an officer to the soldiers under your command that are vastly more important than your personal needs. And I think that with that, as long as you have those values in place, then often on sort of the skills and techniques, you can learn things later, you can improvise and adapt at the time, um, you know, you can make difficult decisions in ambiguous environments um, but without the values, you're nowhere. Um, and so I think that was the predominant focus of it, really. And I think it was, you know, I was fortunate to deploy to Afghanistan like very shortly after graduating Duntroon. So had very good pre-deployment training, but not a ton of it. I was relatively inexperienced. And I think I was ready as one could be. Um, I think Duntroon was very important in being ready to do the... Because I actually got to do the job live, which not everyone gets to do, but I was I was ready enough, I think. <laughs> There's um a a big part I feel you know of of your story, and I can only imagine who you are today is you know very 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 different to the person you were when you landed in Afghanistan. Oh God, um, yeah. <laughs> and and I I can't begin to imagine you know first of all the training that they put you through in terms of you know, the interest of the mission or the interest of, you know, your soldiers and the people that are around you um, before yourself. Um, but I'm quite curious to know, you know, landing in Afghanistan, you're, um, you know, probably quite young <laughs> at the time. You've got such a, such a maybe a big self-responsibility on yourself and, and you don't know what the next couple of years will entail, um, let alone where you might be in the next couple of years. But I'm quite keen and I know we'll take a snapshot of, you know, who you are today and, and the experiences you've had today. But I'm quite keen to, like, jump into the head of, you know, Ash, you know, when you landed in Afghanistan. What was that like? Um, and what were you well, thinking? Well, my <laughs> first... I think my thought was shit. Like, you actually have to... I actually have to do it now. Because there's this whole thing of, like, it was. it's really exciting just to get selected to deploy in the first place. Like, one thing probably useful for your listeners to know is overwhelmingly soldiers want to deploy. Yeah. They don't want to be like a fire pers- a fireman who's never seen a fire 
with relatively few examples, deployment's competitive and people are very excited to do it, and I was no different to that. Um, but then it comes down to the reality of doing it, and, you know, I had, um, you know, I put my, I'd had like 50 guys under my command, seven armoured vehicles. It's a big job, and so I was... I had a good level of nervous tension, I think, about that. You know, there is an amount of anxiety that aids performance because it keeps us sharp. We don't take things for granted. Um, and you can spill that over, obviously, which we'll talk about. But I, I think I was not overawed. I'd probably be overawed if I went and did it now. I mean, there's an advantage of being young, right? Like when you're young, you think in grand gestures and you feel mm. bulletproof. Testosterone filled. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and things, things lack nuance and that's probably exactly the sort of people you want to be sending to do these things. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I was pretty excited, honestly. Like we came and you do what's called your left seat, right seat, your sort of handover with the guys you're replacing um, to understand the sort of ground and the people a bit better. And I was just like raring to go. So mm, there was yeah. a nervous excitement, but it was also like, no, I'm good. Like let me at it um, in a very early 20s <laughs> mindset <laughs> approach to life yeah there's um you know like i don't even know where to begin with this question it's like you know you're 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 raring to go you're you're full of testosterone you're full of energy and you know in in my head the people i think of you know the people that go to army are these macho people you know you're the um you know creme de la creme of you know masculinity you're you're the you're a warrior you're a fighter and and I know we're going to touch on this, and and it's so important for people like you to speak up on this because um, people that speak up on you know being vulnerable and their own mental health, it's these two things aren't closely aligned with you know the the general stereotype you have of warriors and people that are very masculine with people yeah. you know on the other end being quite vulnerable, and I think that's mm. a very important thing and and a very unique thing about your story. Um, you know, going going back to you know your your day to day in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're always thinking about, I imagine, you know, maybe making it to the next day, the next week, um, you know, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's fighting against the Taliban and physical health is such a such a big priority, you know, in your training and just your own survival. Mm-hmm. Does, mm-hmm. does the does the question around mental health ever come into your head? You know, were there days where you were just like, ah, oh, shit, I'm, I'm just not feeling good. But you completely subside that and you put the interests of the mission um, you know, at the front of everything. Um, like showing up. Yeah. Show, showing up. I think that's that's the idea, like showing up each day. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important there to to talk about the difference between... So so two things I would say to Parsec. So I think it's a really good question. Is there's a distinction between, like, acute mental health mm. and sort of, like, long-term mental health conditions... And then there's the whole concept of mental health as a continuum where everyone is always at some position of, like, good and bad. So if we talk about the the continuum perspective, like, I think, like, of me and the 50 men I'd been under my command, like, on any given day, people are either doing really well or, like, not as well. Um, you have to show up. I mean, like, you, you, have, you have to show up. I never, I never felt... Uh, like it was, uh, you know, short of a really acute sort of condition, you get strength from the fact that you look at the man on your left and the man on your right, and um, and wonderfully there are now women serving in infantry, so my gender-exclusive um, terminology just reflects the reality of the time. But it is the fact that you look to the man on your left and the man on your right and know that they will continue to stand up that makes you stand up. Um, Now, the problem is that that is a really, really good mechanism for getting through relatively short periods of intense activity. Mm. Like that's Mm. a really good way of priming your psyche to go and do hard things that you don't want to do, things that can damage your mental health and obviously damage your physical health. So... It's actually like a really robust... Sebastian Younger wrote a, a fantastic book called Tribe. Um, and so you've got your sort of like tribe um, and it's these guys against the world and you feel a part of something and that gives you like a really robust framework to perform. 
and I think that's one of the reasons why, like, we don't see a ton of, like, acute mental health incidents in operational theatres. Like, that doesn't, mm. that's not, you know, I'm sure, it, I'm sure it does happen, but it doesn't happen much. Um, but the question then is how do you adjust back um, at a later date mm. when you don't need, you don't have your tribe um, and that threat that you're defining yourself against isn't there? Um, so it means like I look at it, you know, almost, I've always thought a bit of my own, um, PTSD, which, um, as a, it's like an over-adaptation, like there were certain skills and behaviors that were really useful in Afghanistan and ways of thinking that I adapted to and found it very difficult to adapt away from, even though they were not as useful, you know, doing your grocery shopping at Woolies. Mm. And, and it sort of feeds into this sort of subconscious, the, the way you go about things on a, on a day-to-day level. Um, I, I, I just want to ask sort of point blank, um, is, there, is there situations, obviously, you know, with your PTSD, is there a situation that happened in Afghanistan that sort of flipped it for you? You know, when you, when you look back at your time in the war and on the front line, um, are there particular moments that just spring you know, whether you're grocery shopping, whether, you know, you're at a footy game or whatever it might be, that just sort of spring out of nowhere. Less so less so now. Like, there are incidents that stick in my mind. Like, I was called upon um, to take an individual's life at um, reasonably close range um, and things like that sit with you. Um, so there are things that... Um, used to be when I was quite unwell, very much at the top of my brain um, that would come up and out um, at times I didn't want it to. That happens much less now through many years of sort of treatment. Um, But there's some big memories, right? Like this was a a foundational event in my life. Um, And so sometimes things come back. I think... What is distinct now from when I was really suffering from PTSD is like I can experience things as memories, not as like activity. Mm. I mean, one of the things that happens, I think, or at least for me, I can't speak for anyone else, but when I was really unwell is this inability to distinguish from what is an experience from what is a memory. And so Mm. I would experience things and I, I know in my conscious mind that that's not happening, that that happened months ago. But my sort of the deepest, most reptilian parts of my lizard brain mm. don't realise that. And I'm getting the anxiety response that would happen as if it was for real. Mm. But thankfully that's, um, yeah, like massively less frequent than, than it once was. Yeah. There's, a really, there's actually a really good analogy that I heard um, from a psychologist uh, who, who likened this sort of... Um, this sort of anxiety um, to a faulty fire alarm. Um, yeah. And, and the analogy essentially goes, you know, the fire alarm is great when it works as it alerts you to a danger, much like anxiety does. I mean, um, anxiety can definitely alert you to the threats that are around you, but if there's no perceived threat around you, then it can be a bit of a hindrance, much like a fire alarm. Like, yeah. if there's no threat of a, fire, of a house fire and it sort of went off um, based on anything you did, I mean, it can come into the way of doing normal everyday yeah. activities. I think it's it's a fantastic analogy. Like you can adapt to one situation, have a series of behaviours that are really helpful. Your brain's actually your brain. It's deeply evolutionary in your brain to ensure that you're set up to protect yourself from threats. Um, it is much harder to come backwards um, to an environment that actually doesn't really have threats um, and have be able to sort of behave in the appropriate way. Yeah, 100%. I think you put that really well. Um, so you've landed on the tarmac uh, in Afghanistan as an infantry officer. You've done your training in, in Duntroon. You're, like I said, you were sort of testosterone-filled and you're ready to, to fight. Um, are you able to maybe describe to those people who don't know, potentially, you know, what the role of an infantry officer is and perhaps whether there was a day or operation where that sort of outlook on the war changed for you? Yeah, sure, 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 sure. Um, so I was an infantry platoon commander and basically infantry is, is uh, dismounted combat of like fighting on foot away from vehicles for the most part. I also had 
um, some armored vehicles. But essentially, our role was the mission of um, the, the battle group, the larger battalion that I was in, was basically mentoring the Afghan National Army. Um, and mentoring them in the field. So, like, as they are taking the fight to the Taliban, helping them do that. We were there to help provide some Australian combat power um, to provide a bit of security as Australians doing the mentoring and also to try and help degrade the Taliban's ability to fight while to bring them down a bit while the while our mentoring brought the Afghan National Army up. Um what that meant was basically would go out for six or eight weeks at a time with my 50 guys live in the fields by the vehicles um, and patrol through um, the habited um, parts of Uruzgan province, um, both looking for the Taliban and also seeing how we could better understand the local nationals um, and help them in, in different ways. Um I think the incident you're, you're talking about um, was in the Chora Valley in Afghanistan in late December um, 2008. And um, what happened was uh, we were conducting a, a fairly routine mission for the time, providing some security. The Afghan National Army were um, searching some suspect houses um, and we were forward of them, providing them a degree of security. Um, and we got into a pretty significant ambush. Um, and one of my soldiers um, was shot quite badly. He was shot in both legs. Um, it was a critical casualty. And then we spent the next sort of, say, hour and a half um, fighting at sort of extremely close range um, to get him back to uh, a helicopter, back to a hospital and to survive. Um, and it was – there were other incidents of combat I was in. Um, the significance of this was probably it was one – it was the only one where it occurred to me at times that this might end extremely badly. Um, like as opposed to, you know, anyone can get shot, right? You zig and you should have zagged and I was relatively comfortable with that that being just the luck of the draw. Um, but there were times when this event felt like it could go catastrophically wrong. Um, and so it didn't, which is good. Um, and, and our soldier, Matt Pepe, um, who survives, is a teacher now. Um, oh, wow. Is something that it's just a day that sits with me um, and always will because that's sort of um, a, a near-run thing is something that um, you tend to, you dwell upon. Um, I've replayed it many yeah, times wow. in my mind. And, and when you find yourself in that situation where you, you're sort of pinned down by gunfire from more directions and you've, you know, it, it seems like everything is sort of falling down around you um, and you have to make a decision that not only affects your own life but also the lives of the 50 men around you, um, how do you go about dealing with that kind of pressure? I... I honestly, like, I'm very careful in how I describe this because I don't want it to sound like I'm beating myself up because that's not the intent. But I was vastly more scared of... I had vastly more anxiety about making a mistake that would affect the lives of my men than I was about, like, my own personal safety. And and I don't think that was unusual. These were values we were inculcated with, that you don't come first. So did I feel personal fear? Of course I did. Like, it'd be stupid not to. It was super dangerous. Um, mm. But what scared me and what I was thinking of at times during that um, that contact with the enemy um, was I the, the just horrified at the idea that I could make a series of decisions um, that would not work out in a pretty catastrophic way was why it was like later on when the day it ends and it was all done then I reflected a bit on like personal risk um, but you know like this isn't just like I'm not sure I'm quite certain this isn't just a reflection on me as a person I was trained I was prepared in a systematic way um, to feel an emote um correctly um for the task at hand and so i think i i 
you know, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to your level of training. Um, and I think I was well prepared and to the degree that anyone should be thanked for my performance mm. such as it was, it was like the subject of training. There's a, a big a big part of your story, I feel, you know, you, you've just said it, you know, you're an optimist of the human condition and, and what humans are possibly able to do. I think looking back, you know, and, and not to compare one experience to another, but a big part of my, you know, last couple of years has always been a piece around resilience. I've always been, you know, I think resilience can take you out of a lot of adversity and a resi- and, and resilience in its own approach. And, you know, you've got Simon Sinek, who's, you know, a very big optimist. There's there's so much that we can do in terms of conditioning and training our mind. Um, one, one thing in... You know, one one thing I've always been curious about is, um, you know, they they often say diamonds are made uh, under pressure, and what I'm curious to know is how do you see the concept of, you know, in quotation marks, soldiering on, versus giving up, you know, when adversity leads to, you know, undue pressure, and yeah, a couple of th- it's a fascinating question, right? Like, um, and. If anyone ever truly is able to answer it, I think I'll do a lot of people a lot of good. Um, <laughs> yeah, th- there's it's a golden ticket type of question. <laughs> there's a difference. Mental health is a continuum, and everyone has it. So it's not like a binary one and zero. Mm. Bad mental health, normal. Um, we all ex- go through periods of of where, um, and we talked before about how there's degrees of anxiety that are good, that make you alert, that stop you from being a vegetable. Um, and then there's degrees that aren't. So I think it's it's a function of two things, really, um, resilience, and that is, is the current environment, is what you're in right now, is it really life and death? Is it really that important? Um, and is it worth, you know, so in Afghanistan, in a combat environment, is it, if, if you feel like sitting down and you're in combat, is it worth getting up? Sure it is. Um, and that's a useful example of resilience if you work in professional services and you're experiencing deleterious mental health that has the that you know that is is dangerous that potentially you're considering um self-harm or the harm of others or your physical health being affected by your poor mental health is it resilience to keep going then possibly but it's not helpful so we can put the the word resilience on it but i think resilience always also means um looking after the machine um, and it has a, like a temporal view mm. of like I'll be resilient over a period of time and that means to be resilient over a period of time I need to do certain things to ensure I maintain my resilience and that includes looking after your mental health. Um, I think the, and I know you didn't, you brought it up as a, as a question not a statement, but like Resilience is a really useful word. It can also be a really lazy and damaging idea, misused. Um, to just there's a there's a way you can throw. It's a great concept, but we have to be really definitionally clear because I wouldn't want people who what they desperately need is like twenty four hours sleep um, and to talk to someone about how they're feeling mm-hmm. to feel like that's a positive example of resilience. Identifying like what your stresses are, what helps address them to get you back to your optimal performance condition, that's great resilience to me. Um, but in not in, in, in lots of work environments, resilience de facto means the toleration of all the stresses of the job. Um, and I don't think that's a helpful frame mm. um, for resilience or mental health. It's a very, very fascinating take. And I think... It reminds me of this idea of balance and, you know, this can probably be its own podcast on its own, but this idea that, you know, you pursue balance every single day of your life. And I think if, if you pursue that, I, and this is just my opinion, is I feel like that will take you down a very deep rabbit hole because I, I don't think you can achieve balance in every single point in time. I think you're going to have periods where you're going to have to go through very, um, you know, you have to display a lot of resilience. You have to display a lot of um, fight or fire or what you have in you to get through those situations and then there's going to be periods where you know things are going to quiet down um, you mentioned you mentioned quite early on in the piece around transitioning back uh, into normal into normal life and um, you know that 
distinction between what is a memory and what is an experience. Um, you know, obviously hanging up your boots and, and finishing up at the army, that's not any, that's not an easy, that's not an easy choice at all. But when you did make that call, um, what, what was that like transitioning back into normal civilian life? Cause that, that is something, you know, reading up on a lot of articles that a lot of people who do serve in the army, that's, that's often sometimes harder and, and they, they describe that as being a lot more harder than what it was like serving in the war. But what was it like for you? Um, I thought about it a long time before I did it. Um, it was, it, was, was it hard. Some, was it something yeah, you sorry, knew? Yeah, sorry, no, you go. Just before I go, was it something you knew, like people that had spoken about when they finish up in the army, that this was a whole new chapter to be aware of? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, to a degree. There's people end up on both sides of it, right? There's mm. people who leave and regret it and miss it deeply or don't regret it but still miss enough elements of it deeply. Mm. And then I would probably put myself in that bucket. Um, then there's people who stay way too long and are disc- you know, the same as any other organisation mm. and are, like, disgruntled and they should have left ages ago because they're mm. clearly not... They've lost the love for it. Um I wanted to leave, and I think I successfully managed this, at a time where I was still um, useful um, and enjoying it Um, and not at a time where I was, you know, difficult and begrudged being there. Because if you don't do that, then you're that guy or girl, right, who's, like, stayed on too long, who's a cynic, Mm. who's... Drag, not like you know, not helping the organisation perform, and so I think I picked my moment to go off and do my my MBA in London, um, but I missed it. I would say that the biggest thing I missed was my friends and a shared because we have shared set of experiences, shared set of values, but they're, like they're still your friends, right? So like mostly that comes along with you. Um, and so the organization itself, um, I think I'd done, I'd done everything I wanted to do. Um, so I miss people. I'm still super interested in what's happening in the army. Um, but I timed it well at a time where I look back on it fondly, but not wistfully, um, I think is probably the best time to leave any, any job. And I, I think I timed that mm. one pretty well. And obviously like making, making the move that you did, you know, into a new new profession. Does does doing does doing a job not as life threatening as as what you did in the war? So you know whether that's in professional services or whatever you might have done in a, in the interim. Did that change the perspective on on the work you did? Sometimes, I think it gave me a lot of perspective. I think I was good at helping other people through their own stresses um, because I knew I am a credible voice of putting things in perspective. I'm actually pretty bad at doing that for myself, honestly. Um, I worked for, um, after finishing my MBA at London Business School, I was a strategy consultant for five years and had like a pretty stressful job and like that stressful job, which was a wonderful job, loved it. Um, was really stressful and I had two like significant mental health episodes um, during my time there, Um, you know, including like the, you know, at times feeling um, at the threat of self-harm. So first of all, hard to unpack what is like the current stresses versus what stresses back in your life, you know, like correlation and causation aren't the same. But two, like I wish I could say that I'm just like the pink panther cool cat who's like I've seen harder stuff than this so nothing riles me. It's just not true. It might work for other people. Um, It hasn't worked for me. It is a message I think I'm good at giving to others. Um, and it's, it's the thing people say to me all the time, and I don't mind them saying it, but people go like, oh, you must deal perfectly well with the, the stress of, like, you know, putting the deck together for Steerco mm. because you've been in sort of a life-and-death situation. And I'm just saying that just nod along, like, yeah, 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 mm. thinking, God, it would be really helpful if that was actually true. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and, like, I'm, and, I mean, 
yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Could, no, I was just going to say, like, on, on that point, like, because of your experiences, did it make it hard to relate to other people? Um, because of that, did they understand what you had For a lot of years, with? yes. Um, mm. I think now, no, but that was a really long journey. Mm. Um, so I, I think the... There was a couple of years, at least, where one of my overwhelming thoughts was just like people are like flippant, um, mm. and people don't take the world seriously. Or why is someone worried about this when like? Because I came mm. home, you know, full of my own sense of self-importance. I've just done this gigantic thing, mm. um, and home life just felt really like small. Um, small and and irritating. And this was like, so first of all, made me no doubt unbearable to be around. Um, but also did me no favours and did other people no favours either, mm-hmm. by the way. Um, so like the, the world, life's not like a challenge for like who can do the hardest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a journey where we get things thrown at us um, and we respond and we relate and try and in the in the end become like better versions of of what we used to be. Um, and so I think that I wasn't forward looking for a long time. I think now I'm pretty good at being forward looking um, and like what's the next thing? Let's do that. Um, but there was probably at least four years um, where I was pretty backward looking at Afghanistan and really mm. like in morning almost that like I was honestly convinced that the most important thing I'd ever done um I'd already done Mm. and I was 23 and so now what do I do Mm. but now like I've got like two kids um you know um loving spouse that's everything's like Afghanistan's a long time ago, right? I still think about it pretty frequently, but I was wrong. The younger me was wrong. There was plenty of life ahead of me. There's plenty of life still ahead of me. And being forward-looking is, I think, typically more helpful than being backward-looking, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah, that's, that's really beautifully said. Um, yeah, um, that, that was really awesome. I think, um, especially from that forward-looking perspective, I think, was there a time where you, where you sort of thought that, okay, now that I've sort of experienced what I've experienced in terms of like the PTSD and stuff, um, you know, did you, did you feel like from that forward looking perspective that you could also help other people who are also experiencing the same stuff that you did after the war? I mean, I remember there was a time actually where you posted in the internal, uh, the ADF newsletter, and then one one of your platoon, like one of your mates actually reached out and said, hey, I was was actually going through the exact same thing. I think that was the sort of like crossing the Rubicon moment where I decided to stop rebelling against the fact that I had PTSD and depression and then decided, well, it just is what it is, right? Like, you can wish you didn't, but you do. Um, And you can also stop feeling, you know, there's self-care and there's feeling sorry for yourself. And so, and they're different. I think I'd got into a zone of feeling sorry for myself, um, which wasn't helping me personally. Um, And so then I think I just got, with help, uh, professional help, was able to change, like, my outlook on it of, like, okay, it'd be better if I didn't have PTSD, but I do. Could have been worse, have all my legs, have my sight, have my physical health. Um, And also, you know, I always love the the quote from Hemingway in um, Farewell to Arms, like, um, stronger at the broken places, um, you go through a process and I think of healing and learning about how your mind works. That's something you can give to others so that they don't have to go through it by themselves. So when I then sort of went sort of public and in inverted commas within the, within the army and then did some media, um, around it and basically decided to live my life with it being being quite okay with people finding out that I have like will I have had have had and will have lifelong mental health issues that gave me something useful to do with it and I think it imbued the whole thing with a sense of meaning that like it didn't it's not pointless um it's not always fun but it can be useful 
um, and at the point in which you just have it um, and there's no getting away from that, you may as well make something of it. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that, that that's kind of like the the narrative with, with mental health, really. I think, um, you know, like you mentioned before, when it, it just takes one person to sort of open up about it to to have, you know, different people um, also open up opening about the same thing. And it sort of creates this idea of a community. And I think we, I think you touched on it before, that, that whole idea of tribalism, um, that whole, I'm not, I think I might be taking this out of context a bit, but that whole idea of tri- tribalism, that whole um, in, we're in it together type thing, which sort of makes us, mm. I guess, stronger in the end and, and, and better, better equipped to sort of fight that battle. I think the other thing, I think that's really true. I think the other thing I would say is like that where you can have like mental health challenges and lead a really rich, fulfilling, successful life. I love my life. I've you know, I love my family. I've got a great, um, I've got a, you know, had a really successful career that I'm really proud of. Everyone's mm. got their cross to bear, right? Like this is, this is mine. Um, but with help and treatment and knowledge and a reduction in stigma, like if you're there's no reason why anyone who has sort of up and down mental health can't also have a really fulfilling life um that has all the richness and diversity of experience that anyone else has um and there's there's lots of people and far more people than who would imagine who are leading like you know quote unquote i mean a, a successful mm-hmm. life is one where you're happy and help others but a quote unquote successful life who have these challenges and and one of the things i i you know, like to talk about it, I actually find it challenging to talk about, but do talk about it for is because, you know, you can't, that wonderful phrase um, they use in terms of um, uh, like female leadership, mm-hmm. you can't be what you can't see. Um, so I think there's a bit of an onus if you um, have come out the other side of some difficult times. Uh, one really helpful thing is to share your story mm-hmm. so someone can like just see that as a lighthouse example of, okay, like, you know, this can work. There's, there's like, we've, we've looked back at your experience and there's been, like, you know, a lot of, a lot of things that have happened that have built you into who you are. And looking at the person you are today, is there some, some, sort, of val- like some sort of value structure that you're really grateful to have gotten from your experiences or, or a particular outlook? on the world in terms of that forward looking? I think, I think two, um, three things I would say. Um, one, trying to think of others before yourself, like putting others first and putting the mission first that I got from the army, I think is a fantastic value that rarely mm. will set you wrong. Um, the second is, being an optimist about the human condition. Um, I had huge fear that people were going to be sort of awful and I'd be maligned and marginalised by sharing my story and I overwhelmingly haven't been. People have been overwhelmingly good. I know that's not always the case and that that a stigma Mm. exists. It really does. Um, But when you can confront people with your own example and with facts, most people are good. I fundamentally believe most people are good. Um, and then the third one is self-responsibility, um, like accountability. Like you can't – getting better is mostly on you. Like and you'll need help and that's not a, ju- that's not a judgment um, of people who have real trials and struggles who are, who are trying really hard um, because I'm not saying it always has a good outcome when you have accountability. I'm not saying that. But I think it will never have a good outcome if you have none. Um, and so look into yourself for what you need to help yourself and apply that care. And then if you have any capacity to help others in whatever way makes sense for you, then that you will benefit from that um, as well. One, one um, and I, I know we probably don't have too much more longer. <laughs> um, I know there's, there's a lot of themes we've touched on and, there's probably a listener out there that's considering a, a career in the war or career in the army. Um, question for you, mm. reflecting mm-hmm. on sort of reflecting on the effects that war has had on you and, and some of the experiences that you've walked away with, would you recommend a, a career in the military mm-hmm. to a person today? And would you say that 
the benefits of sort of yeah yeah absolutely if they if they want to do it for Mm. the right reasons listen like the hard things exist There'll, there'll always be stresses and hard and demanding circumstances that require people to do them because of some other mm. values-based reason. So someone has to do stuff. So if you think for the right reasons that's the mm. thing you want to do, then stare into the face of the challenge yeah. and, and do it. Mm. Absolutely. Um, if not mm. you, then who um, is what I would say um, was something that I told myself. Um and could it go? Could it go wrong? Yeah, sure. Like life's mm. not deterministic. Um, but I'd also say, like, I did it. I deeply, deeply loved it, and I've had like a lot of challenges mm. since. But I would walk into that recruiting mm. office like I've never doubted that. Would I do it again? I've never doubted it. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Pleasure to have you on, and I think just going back to that first point, I think it's very important for people like you you know, in, in sort of the culture that we're in, the society that we're in, this idea of masculinity and this idea of being macho, we we so much identify that with, you know, people that are warriors or fighters. Um, and having people like you sort of open up and be vulnerable goes to sort of break down that actually this notion of masculinity that we've been holding on to for so long, maybe that's not the right approach to masculinity. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Oh, wow. Um and you know, um, you know, Sonny and I, we we, we just wanted to say, uh, you know, we wanted to thank you a for coming on, but also uh, for serving our country as well. Um, it would have been uh, it definitely wasn't an easy decision for you to to go and fight over there, but you've um, you've contributed to us uh, being safe here in Australia, and um, we couldn't thank you enough for for your services to the country. No, and thanks to you guys for your time and, and for what you're doing. Like anything that that gets you know adds to the conversation is 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 amazing so it was my absolute Thanks. pleasure to join you tonight cool well I think that's us done and dusted Sunny signing off this is Mank signing off thanks for having me guys And that's it, episode number 22 is wrapped up and what a convo that was. Now, as Sonny mentioned before, that was actually the first time we sat down with someone who had served in the line of duty. And what we particularly wanted to raise in this episode was awareness around PTSD amongst war veterans, as this topic is often overlooked. And if you wanted to know a little bit more about Ash's story, we've also put a link in the show notes to his TED talk at the London Business School, where he delves into his life fighting on the front line. Next week, we have Jeffrey Ahern coming on the show. Sonny sits down with him where they talk a lot about the relationship one's diet can have on their mental health it's a very new topic for us and it'll be really interesting to tune into that one but yeah that's it from me i hope the next time i'm on here um, we're out of this lockdown so i hope you guys stay safe and stay well